Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. I'm your host, Harold Nickel. On the podcast over the past several weeks, Ren has talked about issues of corporate governance. And, and Ren, you've discussed the situation with the board at Wynn Resorts and the cruise industry. And now we're going to turn our attention to an article that I saw in Forbes, which was also reported over Reuters about one of the more high-profile executives in business anywhere, Andrew Liveris, who is the CEO of the Dow Chemical Company. It's a very long article. And, Ren, for those who might not be familiar with that article, can you give listeners a description of what all was written and alleged in that piece? And. Um- Yeah, absolutely. And I want to make sure that we're clear that at this point, um, most of it are allegations. Right, that's exactly right. Some of it that has been proven and there's been steps taken, but most of it's allegations. But if they were true, what they show is nearly a decade of financial impropriety by the CEO. Mm -hmm. And complacency by internal controls, um, other executives, and even the board. Um, It's culminated really in a former um, financial executive retracting years of annual reports that he signed, Mm -hmm. which is unprecedented. When I saw that, it just kind of blew me away. Um, I've been involved in organizations that had to do restatements because of errors, mm-hmm. but never a full retraction. That that is pretty pretty significant. And what it, it, this article really kind of highlights and focuses on, I should say, is um, really it, the CEO using the company as his personal ATM Mm -hmm. for personal trips, for trips for his family, for um, jobs and income for families and colleagues, even a charity that Mm -hmm. he set up. Mm -hmm. Um, What is known is approximately $700,000 that he had to repay the company. Um, What's alleged is several millions. What is not spoken about in the article, but just kind of like hinted around the edges, is that this isn't just the CEO. It, hmm. It's a culture of financial impropriety behavior. Hmm. Yeah, I guess though too, the, the article had said that there were at least three auditors at Dow who had, who had come forward and reported concerns to company officials. So maybe from one point of view, the system of governance at Dow worked, didn't it? Well, not really, because there weren't actions taken from any of them. Um, That's what's kind of fascinating about it, is that even when one of those auditors, like I said, retracted annual reports that he signed, because he knew that the statements contained within them around executive compensation, executive perks, and use of company assets, proper use of company assets, were not correct and were not true. 
um, there wasn't action mm-hmm. from the board. And that's, that's what should, I think, be concerning to people is the board's obligation, their fiduciary obligation, is to protect the assets of stakeholders. Mm-hmm. If they have known, and the reports go all the way back to 2007, mm-hmm. so that's eight years um, of reports going to the audit committee that there ha- has been at least suspicions of wrongdoing, Mm-hmm. and uh, suspicions that at least one executive, or it doesn't even matter if it's an executive, that one person in the company was inappropriately using the company's assets. Um, there's no indication of action from the audit company, or the audit committee, excuse me. And so there's huge gaps there in the process, um, top to bottom. So... Again, to take the other side, um, for the sake of uh, the benefit of the doubt, it, the article reports that um, that he, Mr. Liveris, repaid Dow close to $720,000 um, mm-hmm. for these expenses, which is a pretty high price tag, at least for um, the average bear. But again, <laughs> you know, it looks like and they could easily make a claim that the system of uh, governance worked because they confronted him and he, and he wrote a check. And if this was an isolated incident, I would agree with you. Mm-hmm. And if that happened in one contiguous audit process, however, it didn't. Mm-hmm. It took multiple steps um, including the involvement of a new third-party auditor to get to that number, and the seven hundred thousand is was even by them considered less than what the actual amount was. Mm-hmm. They believed the actual amount. Everybody, the all three parties who looked at this, believed the actual amount to be over a million dollars. Wow! And the. And again, if it was an isolated incident, we might be able to say, okay, we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. They, they're um, trying to rectify it. However, we have an incident just as recent as this January where Mr. Liveris was um, speaking at an engagement in Australia. He was there for a couple of days doing business, but he actually spent three weeks on the company's dime. Mm-hmm. And he actually, this is what kind of floored me, is he made a joke about it in his speech. He said, I spent a whole three weeks in Australia over the holidays and never put on shoes once. Admittedly, I was on the beach on the Gold Coast, but you get my point. Right. And the company paid for that trip. So of of what he worked two days and was there for... Three weeks. weeks, yeah. And the company paid for, yeah. it looks like, reportedly paid for three weeks. I shouldn't say that as a definitive statement as if I know personally. But, you know, looking at what they found in the article and some research I did online, mm-hmm. it looks like the company paid for his time there all three weeks. And he's a native Australian. So you can understand why he would want to spend time there. Sure. 
Um, I've done that on personal on business trips, you know, extended it, but the company didn't pay my hotel. Right. You know? Yeah. And I've done similar things where I've uh, taken my spouse with me and stayed, stayed over. But like you say, that was, uh, that was on us. We paid for that. We didn't ask anybody else to pay for it. And, um, you know, it seems like if you're a native Australian, you could have asked a friend to put you up. <laughs> Stay with a relative, right? Or, or more likely, his income. Um, he probably has his uh, own accommodations there. Well, probably but so. But it just points out that the incident that we could point to and say, okay, the process may have worked here. Mm-hmm. The struggle is that there's incidences that occurred before that. There's been incidences that have occurred after that. Mm-hmm. We also, what has been reported, we don't know if some of the other issues um, were addressed around corporate and personal income taxes. The company took that amount originally as an expense mm-hmm. against their taxes. Right. And we don't know if the company did a restatement and corrected that. And, you know, so it's that's one of the reasons where this becomes a, an American citizen issue is because that's money that we should have received and didn't. Huh. Um, you know, and, and so there's a lot of different layers here. And that was what was kind of fascinating to me in reading the article is that um, they, there wasn't any discussion of the tax implications. And every single one of the incidences that they uh, reported on have tax implications to the company, to Dow, but also to Mr. Liveris. Mm-hmm. If he was taking these things as perks, then they're taxable. Mm-hmm. So when you take a trip and um, it's not for business, that's considered income, right? Mm-hmm. It's treated as a bonus. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so it's taxable. So if, you know, if my company thinks I did a, a great job and there's actually a company I worked with who did this and they sent uh, me on a cruise, hmm. um, I have to pay taxes on that. Oh. Yeah, right? yeah, I, I, I follow you. Um, it's, it's treated like the IRS treats it the same as like they wrote you a check, but it was a trip. Exactly. Okay. And it's, you know, it's, it's, and they're very consistent about this. They don't care if it's the lottery. They don't care if it's a game show. They don't care if it's your employer. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's all income yeah. and it's all, it's all taxable. So that was the part they kind of uh, left out at me that felt like a gap in the, in the article was, you know, the potential here for tax fraud, mm. both corporate tax fraud and individual well, and the IRS is not known for being um, reticent to ask people to get out their checkbooks. And <laughs> yes, I think the only benefit to uh, Mr. Liveris and Dow is that they're extremely underfunded right now um, because of the current congressional cuts in the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're probably not going after as many people as they could. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, and until you mentioned it, frankly, I hadn't thought about uh, about the tax implications for the 
for the organization or the individual <laughs> until until you brought it up. But yikes. yeah, well, that's one of those things that as governance pro- professionals think about a lot mm. um, because, and that's also why that one individual retracted the annual reports mm-hmm. because by doing so, he has covered himself. He right. he cannot be implicated in tax fraud. Yeah, and it probably uh, or fraud at all. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know when you start talking about and throwing words like that around, it it it's the sort of thing that you would think would cause somebody to have a second thought about doing these kinds of things. But well, yeah. and that's why it's kind of fascinating to me that this is so much about financial issues mm-hmm. and irregularities is that those are the ones that most people avoid, like the plague, uh-huh. because those are the ones you still go to jail for. Right. Those are the governance fails, failures that lead to people spending time in prison. Yikes. And there aren't very many governance failures that will land you in prison. Financial improprietaries and fraud will. Yikes. Right? Wow. Yeah. And so if you have an organization like that, like Dow, that according to this article, has a long pattern of governance laxes around their financial behavior. Mm-hmm. As a governance professional, every single one of us would go, whoa, I wonder what else is going on. Because it takes quite a few layers of governance failure before people uh, feel comfortable Mm -hmm. enough to go to the financial stuff. Mm -hmm. There's other failures that have been happening for a while before people start to allow um, especially things to this extent mm-hmm. to happen. I mean, this is stuff that hits the annual report. Yeah. yeah the stuff you go to prison for, yeah. <laughs> it's in the annual report. It's, you know, so it, it, it's, it's really kind of concerning to me on that level. And I think that's why it's getting so much attention in the international press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I have a sense that um, maybe you think there's another shoe going to drop on this or or not. I think so. Whether or not Dow is going to be able to contain it is really the question. I don't, I don't think any governance um, or crisis management professional, honestly, looking at the situation, has any doubt that there's more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just whether or not Dow is equipped to manage it yeah. when it happens or when it's discovered. And I guess, too, whether it's it's this particular situation or others like the one we talked about a few weeks ago with, with wind resorts or cruise ships, what can shareholders do to remediate situations like these? The biggest thing is shareholders need to actually be active shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's been fascinating to me over the years is when I've been in the C-suite or been working consulting with the C-suite is one of the things we track is how many um, shareholders vote, mm-hmm. um, actually vote, which it's usually less than a third, and how many even sign their proxies over 
uh, to the existing board or an existing um, executive, mm-hmm. which is very high. So if you look at the tiny population of votes that are ever registered, most of those are actually proxies. Oh. And it, it's really kind of stunning how many shareholders just blindly uh, turn their votes over to the existing board or the existing executives and don't ever look at this. But a lot of that is changing. Is More and more shares are managed by um, fund managers. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more of them becoming, um, I don't know, how they intend this, but they're often called as activist investors. Right. And I, I say, I don't know if that's meant as a slur or not. Um, when I see it in certain publications, it's very clear that it's not a compliment. Right. But we're seeing more of them. Third point was is highlighted in relationship to Dow because they have a large stake in Dow mm-hmm. and they have two um, of their own board members of their own choosing on the board for Dow. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a track record of a very low tolerance for poor governance. Hmm. And it's not so much that um, being the you know activist, meaning tree hugger, right. they're, they're capitalists. Sure. They want to see good business behaving well and they want to see boards and executives being true stewards of the company and not treating the company as if it's their personal ATM. And so they do have a track record of really imposing stronger um, governance. And again, what we see is companies with strong governance actually outperform their competitors. So... um, That's interesting. Well, because you have... It's a whole culture of um, people taking um, accountability and responsibility for things, really having ownership for the value of the company. And we talk about this a lot in in agile governance is everybody is um, an owner of how the product performs mm-hmm. and that relationship with the customer. Strong governance is very similar in that way when you apply it to an entire company. But the assets, the company's assets are always being used in the be- the way that best grows and forwards the goals of the company, mm-hmm. not individuals. And decisions, especially investment decisions, are made based on facts and alignment to the company's strategy and goals, not on what I like to call HIPPO, which stands for highest paid person's opinion. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> not the aquatic mammal, but um, it's an acronym. Yeah, HIPPO. Yeah, HIPPO investment decisioning is actually extremely expensive mm. for companies um, because they, they it's actually one of the root causes for why we lose so much value um, in projects and uh, investments every single year. Remember I told you in um, 2013 that number went over $1 trillion. Yeah, I, I remember. Val- lost value, right? Yeah, I remember how thunderstruck I was by that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So companies like Third Point, there's other ones, but I'm highlighting them because they have a specific relationship with Dow. They're very focused and known for wanting strong, effective governance. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's the kind of um, shareholder involvement that turns these companies around mm-hmm. that doesn't require um, any sort of regulatory involvement or any uh, government action, including investigations and putting people in prison. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, a good word, and I don't think anybody wants to see anybody uh, have to go to to jail. And, and along those lines, can you give us mm-hmm. some examples of of where companies took situations like like these and and were able to turn it around? Well, it's kind of interesting because situations like this aren't that unusual, especially in larger companies. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked with someone very closely. We found out that he was financing his affair with his corporate card. Oh, dear. And he repaid the money. He lost his job. He Mm -hmm. lost his stock options. So it was very costly to him as an individual. But it was also a very strong statement to all the executives that even though this was a ridiculously small sum of money, Mm -hmm. by the way, it was about $5,000, Mm-hmm. Um, he lost $22 million in stock options. Ouch. And that particular company is known, I'm not going to out him or out the company, but they're known for taking governance very seriously and were willing um, to remove an executive mm-hmm. to make sure that everybody understands that governance is important. And when you see a company sees an executive, even when it's only whispered about, because they certainly didn't advertise it, but no. it's whispered about, um, that this is why so-and-so is no longer here, um, that creates that culture of intolerance for theft and fraud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, part of modeling behavior and in instances in companies big or small, it's up to the guy at the top to model good behavior. Absolutely. And if they're the ones who are acting the worst, the board needs to take some serious action. Yeah, yeah. So if you walked into a situation like like the one with Dow or Wynn Resorts or some of the others that we've talked about, what would be what would be the first things that you would do? Um the first thing especially in a situation like this, is I want to find out the full extent of the governance problems. Mm -hmm. Because like I said earlier, when governance failures get to the point of financial failure, then there's a lot of other, there's a long track record of governance failures already. Mm -hmm. It, It takes an organization time to build up to the willingness to get to that point Mm -hmm. where they're abusing financial assets as a company. And so you know there's more. And it's better to find it out as quickly as possible and deal with it. The worst thing is to be surprised by it and yeah. have it come up. So it, I, I always work with my clients to let's find out the full extent of the problem. Let's not have any more surprises. We're done with surprises. Right. At the same time, we want to dig into the root causes. And, you know, so let's go back to Governance 101, which is the principles, practices, and policies that protect stakeholder assets and value. Mm -hmm. And let's look at 
what we're doing versus what are known best practices and how do we quickly close those gaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There should be some substantive punishment for those at the top. They're the ones who are ultimately responsible. And the board, if being honest with themselves, should consider their own behavior. Mm-hmm. There's clearly some changes that need to be made on the audit committee. Right. And and you'd, you'd make those changes and that would hopefully have a significant outcome from the beginning, right? Right. And it's always interesting to me, too, that in situations like this or even in the world of of professional sports, you know, we've heard about Tom Brady lately and, of course, before that, Lance Armstrong, that you, you see people who are smart and talented and who, at least from where I sit, really don't need or have to, to bend the rules to be successful at all, but they, but they go ahead and they do it. And I always wonder about, you know, what causes this? You know, Lance Armstrong was a great bicycle racer. Tom Brady could win the Super Bowl without uh, adjusting the air pressure inside the football. And certainly <laughs> Mr. Liveris and people like him have plenty of money to pay for trips and, and whatnot. Why do they do it? It's, you know, it's really hard to say. There are so many different um, reasons and, and motivations. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Mr. Liveris, I mean, based on some of his, his few public comments, you would think it's um, an, an extraordinary sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, with Tom Brady, I mean, I, I struggle with that because you said, you know, he could win the Super Bowl without cheating. Well, the thing is, we don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, here is someone who was drafted last well, in his true. position, um, and he has the entire career he's been on a team that has been plagued with cheating scandals. We don't know, and we highly suspect he's never played on that team when they weren't cheating. So there's no way to know what Tom Brady's real performance is. Well, that's right. Well, that's an interesting take. I, you know, until you mentioned those facts, I had never really thought of it from that point of view. So it it leaves it, you know, the door open to seriously question his performance. Mm-hmm. We have that with a very similar situation with Mr. Liveris. Dow has had some rocky financial performance during his tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, He's had uh, shareholders threaten (laughs) to Mm -hmm. sue because they cut dividend payments, because Mm -hmm. of ill-timed acquisitions, because of other decisions that that, um, didn't benefit the shareholders of Dow. Um, So it, it also makes us wonder, is he really performing very well? If we knew the truth of all these financial statements, what would that really look like? You know, so if we remove the improprietary behavior, what really has been Dallas financial performance since, what, 2007? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know. 
so you know, and it's kind of interesting. I just realized both of these two kind of started around the same time frame. Yeah, <laughs> and, kind of a coincidence. And we have the same kind of questions because they're operating in a rigged environment. Yeah, particularly. I mean, and I don't know enough about the situation with uh, with Dallas Comet, but I follow sports and the football, the NFL, pretty closely, and. You're the only person I've heard say that, well, you know, Tom Brady never played anywhere but New England, and he was drafted at the very end, and maybe he's not Maybe he's not that good. Maybe he is somebody yeah. that needs um, an unfair advantage. I, I, and in, in both of these really are governance questions, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, a lot of people are, are like, oh, who cares? You know, it's just deflated footballs, except it's cheating. Yeah. Yeah. Cheating allowable or not. That's the only relevant question when it comes to the New England Patriots and Tom Brady in particular. And if they were cheating, then does any of the games that we know they were cheating in stand? Right. Including any of the games that led them up to the ultimate reward, which is the Super Bowl. In the case of Lance Armstrong... So if we're going to create a parallel in the sports, they said he was clearly cheating and they stripped him of all of his tour de force wins. Mm -hmm. We have to ask ourselves why the NFL hasn't done that. They know that New England has cheated in multiple games that led them to the Super Bowl. Okay, maybe we can't prove they they cheated in the Super Bowl, Mm -hmm. but we know they cheated getting there. Right. So they shouldn't have been there. Yeah. And, and you know, that should be the ultimate <laughs> penalty. Um, you know, but they're not being consistent in their governance practices either. Yeah, and that, you know, the, the NFL is a much higher visibility um, enterprise than any of the other ones we've we've talked about. And it's like you say, you can't go back and unplay the the games that led up to the Super Bowl, um, other than, and I think they're talking about suspending him for a few games. I don't know mm-hmm. what else there is that they could do. Well, you know, most organizations, and according to the NFL's own um, policies, cheaters are supposed to be removed from the game, banned, mm-hmm. period, done. Yeah. Um, but the NFL has not done that with the New England Patriots. And then, by the way, that's common in all sports. Yeah. I mean, there's a long list, and the most notorious, of course, being Lance Armstrong. There's a long list of athletes who have been caught cheating and have been permanently banned from their sport. Well, Pete Rose... um... Well, he didn't cheat. He was gambling. Well, that's true. There was never any evidence... Did he ever bet on games he was playing? Well, in. you're exactly right. I stand corrected. Yeah, but there are there are other um, people in a variety of sports that have been caught cheating, and they're banned. Right. And they're stripped of any accolades that they had before that. Um, so it's disappointing in Definitely. the NFL, um, but it it speaks to a larger culture that we have in the United States where 
we also have, you know, let's be honest, we've been picking on Mr. Liverich. Right. <laughs> it, but he's not the only one. Of course he's not. He's not, Endow Company is not the only company that's been um, caught in uh, financial scandals. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of those companies are no longer around. Enron, you know, there's yeah. there's a long list of them, right? Some of them have, have managed to survive. Tyco, for instance, had a very, very similar scandal. Their CEO, quote, paid, end quote, his wife to redecorate his office. Oh, dear. Um, I mean, it was crazy, the, the things that he was getting away with. Mm. And they did manage to survive, but... You know they're still struggling to get back to where they were before him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it we have, I think, a, a larger cultural issue of how do we really feel about people who are cheating or engaging in fraudulent behavior in the workplace? Well, are we going to take it seriously? I hope I hope we do, and I hope um, that. All of the things that we've talked about today will help to serve as uh, a cautionary tale or examples of of how not to behave, whether your workplace is um, on a playing field or in an office. Right, because do we want our stakeholders to lose confidence in us? We're seeing that in the NFL. Mm-hmm. There's grumblings of that in around Dow. Mm-hmm. It, it will hurt you eventually. I, I think... Uh, Ultimately, yeah, there's no or little upside. Um, the, those paths that those groups and people are on are are uh, the wrong paths. Right. Hey, in the time we have left, Ren, you've got a speaking engagement you've been invited to. Tell tell the listeners about that. Yeah. Um, Rally Software has an annual conference this year in, uh, in June, mm-hmm. and it's in Phoenix, and I'm going to be giving a lightning talk mm. about applying agile principles to your daily life. Outstanding. And that's in June. Outstanding. And um, we'll post details about that event to renmelberg.com, which is uh, Ren's website. And um, you're also going to be participating in a webinar here in the next uh, few days, I think. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, giving a free webinar uh, talking about SAFE. It's a, an hour and just provides a nice overview of SAFE. It's very similar if uh, people have read the white paper. Mm-hmm. It's very similar um, in subject matter. But we're going to be going a little deeper into a couple of items, especially uh, program and portfolio management. And um, to also see the white paper that Ren just mentioned, you can download a copy of that for free at her website, which is renmelberg.com. And those of you who are listening on iTunes or one of the other networks that carry the podcast, it's renmelberg.com is the place to download the white paper, register for the webinar, and learn more about Ren's upcoming speaking engagement. That is all the time we've got for this week. Thank you for tuning in to 
The Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg, and be sure to come back next week.